The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Each of our mental health journeys follows a different path. How one navigates through mental adversity can be a messy, non-linear, but an important quest. Sometimes the tools we choose aren't always the best ones for us, but learning to cope and growing from our mistakes is undoubtedly an integral part of our recovery. On this episode of Looking Up, mental health advocate and son of the beloved late Robin Williams, Zach Williams, shares his story of rock bottom and how he self-medicated through past trauma. From his low points, he sought support through 12-step and volunteering with mental health organizations. Zach embodies what it means to be a mental health warrior and has co-founded PIM with his wife, Olivia June, in an effort to give people a product meant for the ups and downs of life. The way that we start looking up is kind of with this section that I like to call looking in. And it's basically just a series of some rapid fire style questions. Don't put too much thought into them. The first thing that just comes to your mind. Are you ready? (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So Zach, is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? Absolutely. And that book is Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Okay, great. Okay. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People think I'm outgoing and extroverted when I'm actually shy and introverted. Mm. Describe yourself as a teenager uh, during the high school years in three words. Uh, Impetuous, eager, and... (laughs) Boneheaded. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I get that. (laughs) Yeah. Those are the three. (laughs) When is the last time that you cried? Oh, man. Probably when when my son was born, I think. When was that? Just over a year and a half ago. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Um, Yeah. No, I've definitely cried since then, primarily around... (laughs) Just being frustrated. Yes. Yes. No, I get that. Just today, without too much thought, what are three things that have brought you joy? My son learning, hearing positive experiences with our product, my company, PIMS product. That's awesome. And then hearing that the advocacy work I'm doing is making a difference from people personally when they share their personal stories. Those are the big three for me. <laughs> I love that. I recently read that you got married and you got married on World Mental Health Day. I did. Yes. That's Funny so enough, cool. it was actually a coincidence. <laughs> I was going to ask, was it planned or was it a coincidence? Well, World Mental Health Day is October 10th. Yep. And 10-10-2020 is an incredible day to get married. Yes, it is. So true. And then when it happens to fall on... World Mental Health Day. That's just even more incredible. What a magical day to get married. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. For me, it was, I mean, it was it was an awesome day and evening. It was interesting to get married during the pandemic because we had 
we required everyone to get tested prior and everything was completely outdoors. But um, I'm glad we could pull it off. We wanted to get married on that day a while back, but we were worried about the logistics associated with it, whether anyone would show up. Yeah. So that's so it turned cool. out okay. I'm so glad that you guys kept to your plan and persevered. And I'm sure there were aspects of it during a pandemic that maybe were not ideal, but I'm sure there was aspects of it that made it that much more special and intimate and magical. Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. It was it was a small event and uh, it was really nice to be with people because <laughs> oh, we've yeah. been we've been quarantining during most of the pandemic and have been very cautious. So yes. from our perspective to have the privilege and opportunity of seeing family was something that was pretty awesome. I know. I was just talking to someone today on a Zoom, of course, and I was like, I, I think it's going to be really tough. We have been like a 10 out of 10 on like caution. I have sort of, I have an autoimmune thing that puts me at high risk. And then we have a seven week old right now and a three and a half year old, but and my parents are staying with us to help us. And so we've been really insulated and literally have done nothing, seen no one. And I was saying, I wonder how like how weird or different it's going to be for me to actually be in front of real humans again. And I just remember that when I had my first son, I didn't leave the house for the first 40 days. I, it was sort of cultural, but also I was recovering. Um, I kind of had a tough delivery and you know, just, I was very insulated. And the first time I went out to dinner with my husband, I remember he just was like, he pulled me aside and we were sitting at the bar and he was like, babe, it's really evident that you haven't left the house in 40 days. Like, just be mindful. Like, I I don't know what I was doing. I was like, we met a couple. I like got up and hugged them. Like I had just met them. They felt weird. I was just like, my husband's like, it's very evident, babe. And I was like, well, this one is going to be almost a year. So I wonder what what that'll look like. But I'm I'm so happy to have you on. And, and this podcast is all about resiliency and finding hope in tough places and persevering. And of course, at the core of it, it's about mental health and mental health advocacy. And what better of a person to have on this podcast than you? There's so much of your life and your experience and now the founding of your company and your product really illustrates all that. And so... I'm so honored to have you on and I really wanted to jump in if it's okay and just ask you a little bit about your own mental health journey. How did that begin? And of course, you know, throughout that journey, you know, you suffered a great loss and and the whole world suffered the loss of your father really, but of course, you know, you personally going through that grief and and still going through it. Um I think I would love to talk about your experience and how how you're dealing and how you're navigating through it all and how that ties into your own mental health journey. Absolutely. Well, it's, I have to say it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I, I do listen to your podcast and uh, it's great to actually be able to have the privilege of speaking with you right now. And I certainly appreciate the topic at hand. We're so happy to have you. So maybe just from the start, your journey and your relationship, what does mental health mean to you? And if you were able to tell your story through sort of mental health lens, which all of our stories are, how would that have begun for you, your relationship to mental health? Well, my relationship to mental health, or at least understanding that I had, I guess you could say, certain 
idiosyncratic ways in which I conducted my day started from an early age. I, I had uh, obsessive compulsive behavior and that started as a kid. And it was primarily checking under the bed X amount of times, whether it was 50, 100, whatever it may be, before I went to bed, symmetry, touching something a certain amount of times on both sides. And I just thought it was something I needed to do to just satisfy whatever it was that I was feeling. Right. But that in turn, funny enough, when I kind of segued from being a kid to being a teen or, you know, a young adult, I found ways to manage that, but it... Were they healthy ways? No, that's (laughs) the thing is that I I found certain things like like using cannabis Mm -hmm. and the like to help manage that obsessive thinking. Like self-medicating. Yeah, but it set up all this entire other set of issues for me. You know, and, uh, I, I wanted to say I had no idea, even in some of the research I did before, I had no idea that that you did have that experience. And my first experience ever with psychology and going into the field was I worked at the UCLA Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Clinic and I did exposure therapy with people, which is just like, it was so eye-opening um, to me because I think as just someone sort of a lay person in pop culture, what you think of with OCD is like just someone that's really cool that has like these little idiosyncrasies or neuroticisms and they're sort of romanticized. Um, I don't know if you ever got like, and it never really occurred to me how pervasive it is and how detrimental and and can really take over your life. And my experiences that year were like so eye-opening and 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 you know, working with people that would with when listening to words would count and have to draw a star. That was one of the, I just thought, wow, like they would draw a star with every word. And if there was one line that was missing of the star, they'd have to say a word to make the star complete. And so like to imagine someone having to just do all of that while also just being a person, having a conversation, which is hard enough sometimes it just was so eye-opening and I had so much empathy and, and it's, it's so real. Yeah. You know, for, for me, this was something that as I, as I got older, I medicated through it and it would reduce the manifestations of it, but it led to issues like anxiety and yeah, um, that in turn, I would be, you know, would medicate for, and it became this perpetuating loop. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, I realized that, my way of doing things was very specific, mm-hmm. but I didn't necessarily think of it as a mental health issue until later in life. And, you know, from my lens, I, I experienced different episodes in my life, which were traumatic that in turn kind of catalyzed certain ways of thinking about death and events, you know, and, and ultimately framed how I thought about the future and, you know, my my place and role within a community. And that first event was the death of my cousin by suicide when I was in my early teens. And wow. that was my first exposure to suicide. And so, you know, that in turn led me to, you know, question and, and kind of be concerned about 
my own safety and the safety of loved ones and how they were doing. And then <laughs> in terms of experiencing another traumatic event, my first week of New York University as a freshman in college, I had my first experience living in New York alone. And September 11th, 2001 kind of happened hand in hand. Wow. And so, so that, that was kind of my, my entry into adult life. Wow. And so, you know, but in hindsight, you know, I, I wasn't proximal to a lot of the grief associated with it, but it was a... I mean, you were there. there. Yeah. It was visceral yeah. for you. I, I was a freshman too. I was out here in LA, but so that puts us, I guess, at the exact same age. But I had just started college that September, but I was out here in LA. But it just, it, I, like... I mean, it, it was not a personal, um, like I didn't, I didn't know anyone and I wasn't there, but like, of course, in our generation, just like, like I'll, I was never the same after that, just that the fact that it became a reality and then you to be in it. And I, and you know, with the suicide with your cousin, I think that's a really important point that it started to make you sort of be concerned about like your own life, your safety and others, because it's this thing where even though it's so prevalent, I feel like until it touches your life, it kind of doesn't seem like a reality. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it certainly doesn't seem like a reality. And that's fine. You know, so yes, we are the exact same age or era. This would make us, I just learned the term grand millennials. Oh my gosh. I always wonder, I was like, I spend a lot of time Googling, like, what generation are you to myself? Because I'm like, we're in that weird, are we millennials? Are we, I, I, don't, I didn't know what we were. We're like a cusp if we were on a horoscope. So yeah, grand millennials. Oh my gosh, that sounds so weird. We're grand millennials. Yeah. <laughs> Is it just um, our year? It's, I think it's our year up, up to those born in 1980. Oh, okay. So that. Okay, so we're grand millennials. Uh, thank you for letting me know because honestly, this is something that has perplexed me. <laughs> well, now you know. Now you I know. Yourself as such. <laughs> it's authoritative, you know. So, so yeah, in terms of my mental health journey, you know, that kicked off my college years, and and a large part of my college years involved managing a lot of that trauma and anxiety that came from a lot of stuff that I didn't necessarily directly resolve through things like therapy. Even though I had done therapy as a kid, as a term from you know my my parents divorcing and and all that, but the thing for me was that it wasn't it wasn't immediately apparent that I was self medicating for underlying issues until after my dad died by suicide, you know, at the point that in, in 2014 when he died and he was entertainer Robin Williams just for specific context his death set off a series of events in my life where I found myself not wanting to feel and just being numb and me self-medicating for anxiety and having bouts of depression and trying to manage that on my own with brief stints seeing, you know, healthcare, mental health care practitioners and the like, but not, not in a sustained way. It became really apparent that I was trying to manage my mental health using things like alcohol mm -hmm. in a very, very specific way. And so it got to the point where, you know, I, I'd been drinking to manage my anxiety most of my adult life. And it just became so apparent that this was like drinking, this was drinking alcoholically mm -hmm. to manage myself. 
Was there like and, a specific incident or no, a time? I mean, it, for, how do you think you got there? Was it a rock bottom? Was it just? Uh, no, it was a sustained thing. I mean, I, you know, I to be perfectly frank, had I identified that alcohol was pr- beyond prob- problematic for me in terms of managing my life and the like, um, I wish I had taken steps much earlier in my life. Mm-hmm. Ideally, teens, but you know, early twenties and the like. I, I thought, you know, it was using other drugs was the problem. Right. It was sort of like masked. The alcohol stuff was kind of masked. Like, oh, this is just yeah, like, yeah. I was drink. like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna do coke for a period of time, and then I'm like, I, I stopped it. I stopped doing it, and and then I was like, I'm fine. This is this solves all my problems. Don't do drugs, and if you don't do drugs, you're fine. Mm. But uh, and so that was a period of several years where I was just like, this is. I'm okay. I can manage this. And, you know, there's no point in trying to focus on managing your relationship with a substance or, you know, whether it's drugs or alcohol or what have you, you know, it could be anything. It could be your relationship with food. Right. So, you know, what ultimately became very clear to me is um, I was abusing alcohol and I had been for a period of years, but, but, I was experiencing emotional dysregulation. I was feeling numb. I was not able to connect with people. I had damaged relationship with family, specifically family, but also friends. So, you know, from my lens, it was becoming untenable. Mm -hmm. But then I took alcohol out of the equation. And then what you have is you have this whole, whole long history of, stuff that's really not worked through. Right. That was being masked by the alcohol and the other things. And now you had to deal with, with all the shit. Yeah. Yeah. And so as part of that, that was, that was eye-opening because, you know, for me, it wasn't necessarily a bottoming out. You know, I wasn't, I had a roof over my head, mm. but it was kind of a, I would say, you know, a spiritual bottoming out. Um, in the sense that I felt displaced, I, I didn't really understand myself or, or know what it is I needed to show up for others. And, 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 you know, I first found healing, and this was actually active in self-medicating using alcohol. I first found a lot of help and support through my journey through, you know, volunteering for different initiatives. The mm-hmm. first being uh, teaching a financial literacy class in San Quentin with uh, incarcerated individual who started it goes by the name Wall Street. Curtis Carroll, he's a fantastic person who you know built this program, and I was I was volunteering in the prison, teaching the class with him, uh, and then you know it became very apparent for me that this was very healing as an experience, teaching and doing some something I was confident and competent with, but then understanding that my service-oriented approach was most helpful for me specifically around mental health mm-hmm. and working with mental health organizations and focusing on mental health initiatives. And so I kind of transitioned into focusing on that. And that was something that was extremely eye-opening for me. But then I take alcohol out of the equation and suddenly I'm feeling extremely stressed and nervous and anxious and 
having difficulty sleeping and concentrating and just, you know, having this baggage that I need to address in terms of alienating myself from family. And, you know, at the time I was going through, you know, going through a divorce and just, just a lot of different things that was happening in my life. And so I found a focus on service and trying to heal through working with mental health organization uh, uh, mental health organizations and the like being extremely helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And I loved, you know, being able to add value because you know, my background is in business with a focus on consumer technology and media and, you know, this mental health organization ecosystem, they need support and right, help. Right. And so I, I was able to leverage my skill set to really drive value for these organizations. And like it, it is so healing and such a great step forward in treating yourself when you can actually focus on out of yourself. Because a lot of times like, you know, self-medication and, and the such comes from sort of like the obsessive every day of, of going inside and just like thinking and, and ruminating over oneself. And oftentimes like one of the greatest ways to kind of take a step forward is actually to look outside yourself and see how you can actually be helpful to someone else. And it's, it's one of the best feelings. It's uh, one of the most researched ways, uh, evidence-based ways to actually increase your own joy is by helping to provide some sort of help or healing to someone else. Um, That's obviously not the same as saying you need to avoid or ignore your own treatment because that's absolutely imperative. But oftentimes when you feel like you can't do that and you're stuck, a great way is to actually volunteer your time and your skills and your services, it makes you feel a sense of self-mastery and competence, but at the same time, giving you that jolt of joy by by seeing what you can actually do to help someone else. So that makes perfect sense. And that is so interesting that that was part of your healing journey. I, yeah. I mean, I guess it could... It, at this point, I would just say it's the way for me. <laughs> that's the way. That, that's like the... That's been the catalyst. I mean, finding that service is a path to happiness. Mm-hmm, it, absolutely. Can't go wrong that with that. So true. That being said, it required some catalyzing events and some trauma that ultimately led me down a path to experimenting with what actually worked. And uh, What are some things that didn't work? Well, <laughs> <laughs> trying to drink away the pain that certainly didn't work trying to take kind of more of a material lens you know just focusing on career and things like that just just trying to orient towards that type of stuff mm-hmm. being busy uh, um, being busy exactly so it kind of sounds like it was a rage. lot of yeah anger and rage it kind of sounds like there was there was this shift of like purpose over productivity so it was more about finding a purpose and attaching that to to what you're doing and your time rather than just like being productive. And, you know, I think prior to really finding advocacy, I I was very career oriented, but it was about kind of focus on how can I level up? Mm -hmm. How can I do the things that I I believe are expected of me? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I'm appreciative of all the experience I built up and, the people I work with who I'm a deeply appreciative of. But 
it wasn't that type of thing that was sustaining. What were some other resources or tools that worked for you in helping you kick the alcohol and also just coming to more of a understanding with yourself that alcohol actually was a problem for you? And and sort of, I guess, were there any traditional resources? Like was therapy helpful for you or a program or support or... I'm sure I I know that it sounds like service was the number one, but were there any other types of resources or tools that really worked for you or that you still practice or rituals that you do? Sure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm active in 12 step in recovery and I'm, I'm very, I'm an active proponent of 12 step. It works for me. Yeah. Um, and it's something I appreciate, especially during situations like pandemic. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> when you want to stay connected and, and, not isolate from situations. You know, for me, I didn't see alcohol as a problem. I saw it as a solution mm-hmm. until it became a problem. It was something I used to manage my anxiety from a very early age, from like my teens onward. Mm-hmm. It was something that I just found a great deal of relief from. But again, you know, you take that out of the equation and suddenly you're feeling extremely raw. And I didn't know how to communicate what I was going through with others. And I was angry because I had been subject to a lawsuit after my dad passed away. You know, that can be, it's eminently Googleable, Googleable, but it, you know, it was really relating to estate stuff and just all these things that happened. And in the middle of grief. Yeah. But, but, you know, the first, the first thing you feel is you're, you're frustrated and angry. Why me? Why, why can't I just live my life? And, you know, but everybody's journey is different. And the journey, you know, my experience, my journey brings me to where I am today in which I'm very satisfied and happy with where I'm at and comfortable in my skin and active participant in several communities and get to give back and can show up for people and loved and trusted by my family <laughs> You know, I think you I bring up trust my family. I know, <laughs> which is things. amazing, and and you think those are not overlooked things now when when you didn't have them before, especially, and they're that much sweeter. But you brought up something that I think is so interesting. You know, you said that in the middle, like the start of your grief when all of that happened, and and the anger and the rage and the thinking of why me. Oftentimes, after like a pretty big devastation, I think there's this helplessness and loss of control that happens that that is really hard to deal with. And so how do you think control kind of comes into play and the la- the lack of it when something like that when you lose someone or you know something devastating happens in your life that you had no control over and you have no control over obviously fixing they're gone. It's gone and it, and it's awful. And this idea, you know, when a lot of times with grief, you hear like there's just being out of control and having no control. And what are some of the things that you have done around that? And maybe there are little ways that you were able to exercise control in your life um, or being able to get to the point where, and that this is big for right now too. I'm sure everyone can relate to that. Like even just over the last year of trauma for so many people and a huge theme is like just things not being under our control and how hard as humans that is for us to deal with. Yeah. Well, here, here's the thing is that when you suddenly relinquish control, 
it can be a very scary place if you let it be, it being the world. Mm -hmm. But if you don't let that relinquishment of control govern every aspect of your life, you know, there's a difference between giving up control and being helpless. Mm -hmm. Like, I know I'm not helpless. I have agency. I just choose to to focus and apply my agency where it's valued and valuable. I love that. You know, I think... Yeah. That thing, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the control elements is like if you're seeing what's going on on the political stage or, you know, dealing with a lockdown or the like, it, 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 it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. And you know, there's all sorts of resentments that are, are being driven by a lot of the stuff that's happening in the world. But if you look at where you can apply agency in your, in your effort, you can apply it with your loved ones, with your work, with creative endeavors. You can do all these things that you can make a difference doing, applying. If not for others, for yourself. Right. And I think some of the insight for me was at least that I've learned over the past six plus years is stop being so frustrated by this different stuff and focus on where your value, your scene, where you can apply your skills, where you can sustain yourself and not worry about some sort of con construct that you feel that you should be, that you feel should be applied to your life. A, you, you should, that you feel should be applied to your character. B, mm. And I think that ultimately that understanding that and having that insight helps you feel more fulfilled in life. You know, there's a lot of abundance to be had. And even in an environment where things feel challenging and scarce, it's just about how you view what's at your table and the table around you. Yeah. And, you know, perception is our, one of our greatest inner resources and tools. It's so true. And it's like when you, when you figure that out and, and it sounds so easy, but it, it's not, it's tough. And oftentimes it does take some sort of very big traumatic event to lead us to be able to really do the work and use and sharpen that skill, even though it doesn't have to. And so if you can learn it before that, that's amazing. But our perception is, su is such a huge re human resource that we all possess that is so overlooked. You know, like just where we can shift and recognizing, and, and part of it is growing up, but recognizing over over the years, and, and I know for me, it's been in parenthood mostly, but recognizing that there are so many places in which we do not have control over our lives. But actually, there's so many places, and they might be really small throughout our daily lives, where we do have areas that we can, we can exercise control. And to really, as long as the, those areas are not harming ourselves or others, to really take those and by the reins and just do them, you know, whether it's being intentional about the thoughts we think or, you know, being intentional about how you utilize your own and consume your own energy, you know, whether that's what we eat, what we expose ourselves to virtually online, um, what kind of news we're reading and how much of it, who we're around, et cetera. So like all these, how much we want to move our bodies, how much we go outdoors, like all these things that might seem really small, but they're actually these points of control in your own life that, that we can focus on. And then like something else you said that I think is ring so true, of course, to what I do for a living and the things I study. But yeah, like getting to this point where 
you know, we as humans spend so much time and it's so easy for us to focus on the things we need to improve on or the things that we don't currently have or the things that aren't going so well. And we also are really good at pointing that out in others, even in work situations. You know, our team is not doing good at this or we need to level up here or get better at this. But what we're not that great at and what is so powerful and such a, I almost think like it's the secret to life. It's about really allowing yourself to marinate in those skills and the things that we're really good at and the things that bring us joy and light us up and those good feelings we have throughout the day that you might overlook like really intentionally saying like, oh my gosh, I just felt joy. I smiled. I was happy. I'm going to sit in this a little longer. What does this feel like? <laughs> what is this moment like? Like if I was if I was going to capture this like a snapshot, what's everything about it? Like all my senses. What does this moment smell like, sound like? And kind of practicing allowing yourself to be in that a little bit more. I think it's just, it's kind of counterintuitive, but from a lot of brain research, it's actually a, a really, really surefire way to start shifting mindset and and allowing your brain to receive more happiness. I think it's so important to hear from people like you that are so inspirational and and have and are showing and working through resiliency you know, through your own journey of mental health and the things that you've been through. And, and it sounds like you are actively, intentionally trying to live that way. And it's it's working for you. It's helpful for you. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack with what you said. I, I, I agree with you fully. First off, on the topic of presence, that's my goal for 2021, to try to be more present. From my end, I'm, I'm a planner. I tend to ruminate. It's worked well for me because it enables you to think strategically and the like. Mm -hmm. It's good for starting a company. It's good for running a company. In some circumstances, you could be overly strategic. It's not awesome for managing one's life during a pandemic when a lot is not in your control. Yeah. So part of that is thinking through, how can I be not only present in a situation, but have presence? Meaning you can be present in a situation. That means you're there. You might be feeling the environment around you, but you might not be active in your engagement. Right. And that's, that's where the presence is important. There's so many times where I might be present, but I will completely be lacking presence. Right. And, and so I think that's an important element. And I think it also relates to kind of this era that we're, we're going to be entering into this post-pandemic era. And the thing that I worry about is, is people being so frustrated with world events, being frustrated with the media, any number of different situations. And they say, I'm just going to go with the flow because I can't manage to make all these decisions, even even if they're kind of contrary to what I'm being told or things like that. I really worry about how our critical thinking, our ability to make pragmatic decisions for our own good and for the goods of our community is going to be challenged, mm. you know, through this new new stage. And mm-hmm. without standing on a pulpit and going going through the whole thing, my hope is that we will maintain presence. I, I, I hope that as a population, as communities, we will maintain presence and be able to kind of listen and truly hear people and be able to synthesize that into our own thoughts and uh, an ability to figure out, hey, how do I show up for others? How can I show up for myself in a very real way? Not showing up for myself like I'm being heard, Mm -hmm. 
that is an element of it, but it's only one element of it. It's also about showing up for yourself where you feel connected, where you feel truly satisfied, where you're, you're relationally engaged with the people around you, you know? So I hope that through this transitionary period that people can really be thoughtful about how they want to conduct their lives moving forward. That is a good, hopeful, things are looking up 2021 hope and, and positive anticipation. I think you touch on so many important points because not just pandemic, but just in general, um, you know, our generation and beyond now that I know we're the grand millennials um, and beyond, I, I feel we've sort of lost touch with our intuition. And so it's it's something that, again, another resource, just like perception that we are built with and we have as humans is our intuition. And unfortunately, that's something that has sort of become something we don't even, we can't hear anymore and we don't listen to. And, and it actually takes, it, it's sort of like people, when they hear that, they're like, well, what can I do? And it's so interesting because one of the best ways to gain more relationship with your intuition is actually to do nothing. <laughs> it's to listen. It's to go within. It's to be mindful. It's to be present with yourself. It's to, you know, we're we're praised and patted on the back so much in our generation to be multitaskers. And I'm not going to say that that's not beneficial to many different um, capacities of life. And especially for women, we are always touted as the greatest multitaskers. But too much multitasking can actually be the detriment of mental health. And so as long as we're also taking time out of our our days to actually do one thing and one thing fully and practice that sort of mindfulness, you know, it could be a short practice or, or whatnot, but that's actually training us to be a little more aware of our intuition. And anyway, I, I digress. Sorry about uh, well, that. Well, no. So, so you, you bring up a very interesting point. And I, I think when I mean, there's a couple lenses you could take, I will take the lens of late stage capitalism, whatever you want to call it, technologically connected society. It short circuits intuition in a bunch of ways because of the nature of commerce, mm-hmm. because of the nature of how supply and demand works. Right. And the reason why sh- intuition is short-circuited and, and over the course of living, say, life in an urban environment or in you know a connected environment where you have your phone and everything, you're consistently marketed to. And the goal is there's a lot of optimized experiences that are, are designed to take you out of intuitive thinking modes so that you can do things like buy something that you should you don't need right right that you can consume something that you don't need to be consuming i have a terrible sweet tooth <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not terrible i have a sweet tooth mm-hmm. it is what it is right and you know i go out of in you know my intuition tells me you're managing your feelings by eating this, by eating this toffee, whatever it right. may be. And I think that there's a lot of different elements that lead to our intuition being short, short-circuited. You open up the news, it's a similar situation, because there are a collection of, of needs, goals, and objectives from many different parties that want your attention 
and they want what's in your wallet. <laughs> right. And they, they want to tell you what you need. Exactly. Short-circuiting your intuition. I think this is such a good segue, especially with the eating the toffee, um, into your relationship with nutrition and PIM, um, which we haven't even talked about yet, which is what I want to talk to you about. I read an article in which you were interviewed and I loved how you were kind of like, nutrition and holistic um, practices were kind of all around me growing up um, from your mom. And you sort of said something that I thought was really funny. And you were like, but as like a 10-year-old, like, you know, being told the benefits of kitchery just made my eyes roll. But now I bet being told the benefits of kitchery, you might even be making it. But um, it's just like interesting how we come sort of this full circle. I'd love for you to share briefly about why you started PIM. What is PIM? How can PIM be helpful? Maybe some of the, maybe a story or two, um, which you told me in the beginning is what brought you joy today of antidotes of other people that are using it, that that have positive experiences. And so tell us all about PIMs. And we're not talking about PIM cups. We're talking about PIM chews. <laughs> yeah. So so I started PIM. And PIM's your middle name, right? PIM is my middle name. What a cool middle name, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. My, my dad named me both my first name, but also my middle name, which he thought sounded vaguely Welsh. <laughs> it kind of does, sort of. <laughs> yeah. So the genesis of PIM was, was interesting. It, it related to two things. One is finding healing through mental health advocacy. And the second was that my wife and co-founder of PIM, Olivia June. Also a great name. Yes, fantastic name. <laughs> she turned me on to, and we were dating at the time, she turned me on to amino acid formulations as a way of managing stress and anxiety because- Like L-theanine. And- yeah, L-theanine, GABA, mm-hmm. which stands for gamma amino butyric acid. I believe I pronounced that right. And other amino acids, there's many of them. I found that through taking these amino acid formulations, I was able to manage my acute stress and anxiety that I was experiencing throughout the day when I was sober and frustrated. Yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, through experimenting and trying these different formulations, I realized a couple of things. One is these were transformational for my mental health and that they made me feel calm and focused and present. Not necessarily, they didn't establish presence for me, but they helped me feel present. And and as part of that too, the other thing I realized was there was an opportunity to create a company that stands for mental health support. Like say Red Bull stands for energy. Mm. And to have that company be an advocacy-focused company. Mm. to leverage the tools at your disposal in creating a company and operating in the private sector to actually be on the vanguard of a movement around mental health advocacy. Yes. It just so happens to be that we create a product, we sell a product, we support organizations through portion of proceeds Specifically, right now, we're very focused on Bring Change to Mind, which is an organization I'm on the board of that supports building uh, mental health support communities in high schools and delivering campaigns to break down the stigma associated with mental health. But the thing for us is like, wow, we've got this opportunity to influence culture, potentially influence the private sector, the corporate world, and also the public sector through building and delivering a product that helps people. Right. And the thing for me too was, 
it was awesome to realize that, oh, wow, we could create this product and it's at the frontier of kind of safety and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. No potential for abuse, non-addictive, you know, all these different things. But enriching enough where people want to take it right? so that it can catalyze other activities where they're clear-headed and they can do things that they want to do. And, and so, you know, we created this company with the whole idea of supporting the movement while generating more tailwind for the movement. And so it's been great. Um, it's been exciting. We've got an awesome team and we're growing. And When did you guys launch? Like we launched uh, September 22nd of this year. That's when we announced. Where can people find him choose? Are they, is it direct to consumer? Is it like a subscription model or can they find them in stores or all of the above? You, so right now we're direct to consumer. You can find it on our website, youcanpim.com. Y-O-U-C-A-N-P-Y-M.com. And uh, you can subscribe okay. if, you like, if you like it and you want a delivery. Are there different month. flavors? Uh, we are launching a new... We're just one flavor right now, citrus. We're launching a new flavor next month. Cool. I can't we're wait to find out that. what that is. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting flavor. It's a berry <laughs> flavor. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then we'll be launching additional extensions, uh, product extensions, focus on supporting different states. But the thing for us first is our product isn't meant to be a cure-all. Right. That's not why we're developing it and distributing it and, you know, enabling people to have a form of support. It's meant to be a catalyst. It's not a magic pill that you're touting is going to, or a magic chew that is, you know, this is going to solve everything. Yeah. It's, it's not going to solve everything. No. What we want to do is catalyze healthy activity associated with mental health hygiene. Nice. Yeah. We want this product that you can take and then go out and be meditating. Right. Engage in mindfulness activities. Do talk therapy. Eat well. Exercise well. Connect with your loved ones. That's what we stand for. And, you know, you don't need our product to do that. But our product provides some support around the endocrine system, specifically the GABA system. We interact with the default mode network of the brain because of L-thionine. I love how authentic that is. And I mean, I just, you don't hear a lot of founders of, of brands and, you know, talking about that. Like it's not, you're excited about it. You know that it is something that will complement someone's healthy practices and maybe even inspire them to do other healthy practices, but you're not pushing product and saying, you need this. This will absolutely 100% shift and change your life entirely. And you can't do it without this. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the, the thing from our end is a couple of things. In consumer tech world, you develop products with the idea of establishing engagement loops, their retention mechanism. It means you create a, a product that someone will revisit and revisit and revisit until they're hooked. And, you know, from our lens, I'd like, we want to reframe things, at least with what we're doing with PIM. Mm -hmm. That's how we're thinking about, you know, establishing content and working on kind of additional experiences and the like is we want, we want enrichment loops. You know, how can someone feel like there's a little bit more value added to your life every time you take it? And ideally, we just want to catalyze that way of thinking. So if you continue taking our product and it continues enriching your life, that's awesome. If it doesn't, then by all means, go out and do stuff that does. Right. I love that. 
I want to end up this conversation with a question for you. And then we're going to... You've heard the podcast, so you know the drill. We're going to pull a card from the things are looking up um, optimism deck of cards over there, which I'm going to send you a deck too. My question for you is what's looking up for you? You kind of touched on it before, but what are you most hopeful about what's looking up for you? What are you excited about? I'm I'm looking forward to the what the new normal is and <laughs> what's in store with the new normal because the post-pandemic world is going to be different. I think it opens up an opportunity for a lot of good to happen and a focus on things like, you know, social parity and equality, better mental health support and experiences, mental health parity, also climate change initiatives, uh, maybe, I guess, anti-climate change initiatives. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think what we've experienced over this past period of time, both pandemic and before the pandemic, I think hopefully it will bring about a shared hope for healing and for focusing on the things that matter. Mm, absolutely. Okay. I pulled you a card while you were talking randomly. And I think this one is going to be a good one for you because I share the same. I think about a million things uh, at once and my brain is always going. And I am a str strategist as well. And the pandemic has been really hard for me. <laughs> but anyway, here's your card. This is what it looks like. Mindfully worry. Take a look at your day. Schedule in five minutes to worry to worry about anything and everything that is bothering you or making you feel anxious. The trick here is that outside of those scheduled five minutes of mindfully worrying, no other worry time is allowed. Optimism tip, this takes practice. If you aren't able to do just one five-minute worry session a day, start with two or three scheduled five-minute worry sessions and slowly work your way towards less. So you can take that with you into your day and your week. You're allowed to worry. We all do, but try to set some boundaries around it. See what that feels like. Thank you so much for coming on Looking Up. I had such a good time getting to know you and learning about PIM and all your mental health advocacy. Thank you for that work. Since you're listening or for those listening, you know how passionate I am about that. And um, especially in the work around destigmatizing mental health and mental health illness. So thank you so much. We all have mental health in common. <laughs> Thank you, Deepika. It was such a pleasure. And you know, I'm, I want to say congratulations on being a new parent. Thank you. It's very exciting. I hope you're getting rest. Yeah. Well, it's not the, the seven-week-old actually is um, not the one that is taking away my rest. It's my three-and-a-half-year-old since having the seven-week-old. <laughs> he is... I have two boys. So I join you in the, the boy-parent. But yeah, it's interesting. I'm so grateful and thankful, especially during this time. But it's a lot. <laughs> but I love them. Certainly is. Yeah. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your recent wedding. And say hi to your wife. I, I love her name. And, and say congratulations for me to her as well on PIM. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.